0: Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to John, chapter seven. John chapter seven. We've uh, been this year in the Gospel of John, and continue our series there as we go um, section by section through the Gospel of John. If you if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them and open them to one chapter seven, verses one through thirty one of John's Gospel. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you're welcome to take a pew Bible there in front of you, and and open that up to page 1230, 1,230 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. If you're opened up to God's Word in that section, we're going to read verses 1 through 31. It's a long passage. If you need to remain seated, that's fine. But the rest of us, if you would, stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way... That as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, or the feast of tabernacles was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but... The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because of the Sabbath I made? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, "Is not this the man whom they seek to kill?" And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They said, when the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray together. Dear God, would You wipe away every distraction? Would You help us to focus only on You this morning? And God, I pray that I would preach in Your Spirit and Your power as Your Word is proclaimed this morning. Open our hearts and minds, God, to receive it and to be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I believe that in our age and in our society that skepticism is the mindset of the day. Skepticism is the mindset of the day. Now there are lots of different theories on how that's come to be, but the bottom line is, I believe that our society questions everything. Question institutions, assumptions, History, legacies, we question everything. Now, not all skepticism is bad. In fact, there are a lot of things we ought to be skeptical of, right? I, I would encourage you, for example, uh, be skeptical of uh, pyramid schemes or be skeptical of different things. There are lots of things to be skeptical of, right? We ought to just hold back and be wise about things. And, and there are a lot of senses in which a lot of things that we've often just blindly assumed we've turned out to not be true and our skepticism has served a purpose in so many ways but i believe that everything in our society has been impacted and that not all of it's good that much of it is to our own detriment our humor is almost entirely sarcastic our affection is almost entirely ironic and our religion is progress every we are skeptical of everything great pastor in New York City, and apologist, Tim Keller. Uh, last year, he tweeted, kind of in the wake of a book that he was releasing, this kind of succinct understanding of, of something. Listen to what he said. Doubt your doubts. Be skeptical of your own skepticism. Why? Because you must realize that you are not completely objective. In the scientific age, we, we have this myth of the biasless person, the person totally without biases. But we must all recognize nobody on earth is completely objective. Therefore, we ought to doubt our doubts. We ought to be skeptical of our skepticism. You see, we've become so, so doubtful and so skeptical about the old biases that we can't even see our new biases. We can't even see the ways that we've become just as dogmatic as previous generations. It's just about new things. Jesus, in this text, I believe, encounters doubters, skeptics. Maybe not in the modern sense, but people who are just simply not not completely on board with what he has to say. So I want to show you three doubts, three forms of skepticism, three doubts in the text today. Three ways that people in Jesus' day struggled with Jesus. Then for each... Each of these three points, I want to draw a line from Jesus' day, from the text, to our modern society. And Some of you may be dealing with these things yourselves. I want to draw a line from Jesus' day to our own. I want to show you three types of doubt and just a few thoughts on how to overcome them. Now, I I think I put this on Facebook or whatever else when I was kind of talking about this sermon for today. But I want you to know, this, this probably won't answer all your questions. Those of you who are skeptical or doubters... And some of you may not be in the room today, but I I want to make sure that we're preaching to our society as well. And I hope this will strengthen the faith of our believers. This This won't answer all of your questions, but I do believe that it could be a start for some of you this morning. So three points this morning, three types of doubt, and some thoughts on how to overcome them. Here's the first. Doubting his method. Doubting his method. Verses 1 through 13. Let me just... Get it started just a little bit in these few verses here in John chapter seven. Jesus went about in Galilee, and the Gospel of John tells us he was he was spending less and less time in Judea because there was a plot to kill him now the the feast of booths or the festival of Tabernacles was at hand. this was a this was a, a, a harvest festival of sorts, and so all the people would build booths that they would live in during this time. Most commentators would say this is one of the, if not the most well-attended festival in Jerusalem during Jesus' lifetime. And so many were going there to the Feast of Booths, and his brothers say to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Listen to what the Bible says, verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers him. So here's the doubt that these guys are putting forth. If our brother, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why don't you go when and where you can immediately get the biggest crowd and make the biggest impact? I think that his brothers are sort of struggling here with what later commentaries have called the messianic secret. If you read through the synoptic gospels, if you hear somebody talk about the synoptic gospels, they're talking about uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That word synoptic means to view together. There are a lot of similarities in those three Gospels, and then the Gospel of John stands alone. But it's very pronounced in the synoptic Gospels what many commentators would later call the messianic secret. Now, I I would guess that many of you today have sensed some frustration at times as you read the Gospels and and read through Jesus' ministry. Do you ever feel like it seems like Jesus doesn't want people to know who He is? Have any of you ever kind of felt that tension in the Bible? You wonder, why is it? that Jesus wouldn't want people to know who He is. If I was sitting in some kind of a meeting talking about how to reach people at First Baptist and I would say, I tell you the best thing we can do about Jesus is keep it a secret that He's the Messiah. Well, you guys would fire me, right? You'd say, that I don't think that's that's the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish here, here at the church. Jesus' brothers didn't believe in Him yet, and so I think, there's a, I think they're struggling then with this idea that it seems sometimes like Jesus... To them, and from man's point of view, is reluctant to embrace who he is. And so, Pastor, I've been in ministry now for over 10 years. One thing I've learned about being in ministry is that everybody I know is an expert on ministry. Uh, everybody i know is an expert on ministry so i know i've experienced what jesus is is experiencing here getting ministry advice from from people in the family you get it all the time when you're in ministry tell you what you ought to do you know everybody loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life when you're a minister and so and so he I, i think you can sense maybe in these what these brothers have to say just a little bit of sarcasm they're giving jesus ministry advice Verses 3 and 4. They're telling him, you need to go and let all these people in Judea see these works that you're doing. If anyone uh, works, no one works in secret. He seeks to be known openly, Jesus later says to him, But he kind of gets what they're trying to say. His brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus responds beautifully. My time has not yet come, Jesus says. He says, he must follow His Father's will. That, I think that's what He means by that when He says, My time has not yet come. He is waiting on the Father to give Him that final moment. You know, He said something similar to His mother at the wedding at Cana. My time has not yet come. He says, but your time is always here. Your time is always here. This word that Jesus used for time is often related in the Gospel of John to, and in the New Testament to God's providence. And so when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here, what he's saying is, you're not concerned about what God has to say about when you do something. You can always do whatever you want to do because you're not worried about the Father's will. But my time has not yet come. My concern is the will of God. Listen to what Jesus says. He kind of drives this point home in verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Why can't the world hate them? Well Jesus is saying the world cannot hate you because you're part of the world. He's telling his brothers, you have worldly thoughts, but it hates me why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world can't hate you. The world can't hate you because you're part of it. You're one of the haters, in other words. the world can hate me because I testify that its works that its works are evil. Jesus remains in Galilee as his brothers go on to the feast. And then, obviously, the Lord had other plans. And so Jesus then goes privately. He goes privately to the feast. Now, why would Jesus go privately rather than publicly? I I think, first of all, of course, it's to demonstrate his dependence on the Father. That he's waiting for the Father to tell him when to go. But I don't think that means that we ought to pray every morning and ask God whether we ought to leave for work at 7.30 or 7.45. I think God's given us brains and given us wisdom, some decisions we could make. Uh, We ought to pray about lots of different things, but I I don't think we need to wait on an answer from the Lord every morning on when to leave the house. Now, if you're doing that, God bless you, brother or sister. But I, I I think we can make those kinds of decisions. So I don't think it's a mere timing thing. In fact, I think that part of his dependence on the Father recognizes that in designing this delay and this private arrival here at the Feast of Booths, it was to prevent something like the triumphal entry at a huge festival. We'll see as we learn more about what's happening at the Feast of Booths, we'll see the way that many people already believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so I think that there's a nervousness here that people are going to embrace Him as a worldly Messiah, but not embrace Him as the Messiah of the cross. I think that's the whole point of the Messianic secret throughout New Testament. Many were looking for him there. They were divided on his ministry. But as Jesus goes privately, he's able to avoid that. And then when he gets there, when he gets there, he begins teaching. But let's ask the question about today. I I think this is something that, that bothers all of us today and a doubt that many people have today. Why did Jesus sometimes seem reluctant to embrace his role as Messiah? I think it's a doubt that many people outside the Christian church have. This is an argument I think that many use to indicate that the messianic and divine understanding of Jesus, seeing Jesus as the Messiah, seeing Jesus as the Son of God, a lot of people would argue that it's legendary, that those are things that developed over time, that later followers sort of read that back in uh, to uh, legends and tales about this man named Jesus. However, I want you to know that when Jesus seems reluctant, to be the Messiah. It is not because he's reluctant to be the Messiah. In fact, I would argue it's actually his deep willingness to be the the Messiah according to God's design. You see, even when Jesus, and we're going to see this in the Gospel of John, even when Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples, he begins to reveal to his disciples that he must die and suffer and raise again. They they begin to raise questions and doubts about the fact that he has to do that. And so Jesus is being very careful in showing that he's a Messiah who must go to the cross. He's rejecting the worldly idea of what a Messiah is and embracing God's view of what a Messiah is. And so if you're challenged by Jesus in the same way that his brothers were, I want to encourage you then to start looking at the Gospels. Be doubtful of your doubts in this way and look at the Gospels through the lens of thinking about Jesus Jesus is someone who is dedicated to going to the cross. I think you'll begin to see him in a new light. They doubted, they doubted his method, but second of all, they doubted his authority. That's the second doubt I want to talk about today, is doubting his authority. You see, in these days, people had deep difficulty throughout the Gospels over how Jesus had authority to teach when he had not received the official rabbinical training of the day. You hear it over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. Where does this man get the right to teach us this way? Where does he get the right to talk this way? Where is his authority? Verse uh, 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus has a great answer in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus then shows them in verse 17. Then, furthermore, if your will lines up with God's, then you would know that Jesus is divine. If it's anyone's will to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus then later, when you get into verses uh, 22 and 23 and 24, he begins to press in on the main problem they have with them, and that is they still have issue with the fact that he healed a man on the Sabbath. Jesus then, in verses 19 and 23, begins to show them their hypocrisy. Has not Moses, verse 19, given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek kill me. Then verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Now think about this. What Jesus is saying is that the law of Moses said two things. One, that you ought not to work on the Sabbath day, right? You ought not to be to work on the Sabbath day. Then the law of Moses also said that a newborn baby ought to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so what Jesus is alluding to here is what do you do when the eighth day is the Sabbath, right? It's uh, the moil's predicament. And uh, how do we handle this situation? Not everybody knows what a Moyle is. That's the guy that does the circumcising. Anyway, so, so what do we, how do we handle this situation? Well, they chose one part of the law over another. So to keep, They kept the eight-day rule and broke the Sabbath, so to speak. Jesus is arguing, when you do that, you don't break the Sabbath. So why would you say, when I'm making a man's whole body whole on the Sabbath, that I'm breaking the Sabbath? So Jesus is making sure and making it clear over and over again throughout this gospel, His authority is not from them, but it's from God. His authority is not from them, it's from God. They're they're worried about man-made rules when his authority is from God. Today, I think we have a similar doubt. I hear people say this kind of thing all the time. What does someone who lived 2,000 years ago have to say to me today? What authority does he have? What authority does the Bible have over our life? Why should we listen to something that was written so long ago? Well, let me just give two responses to that. First of all, time, listen careful. time has nothing to do with truth. Time has nothing to do with truth. All the great moral debates of the day always have at least one person and usually multiple people in groups that make this argument. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. That's what I meant earlier when I said progress is our religion. People say progress is this inexorable, unsurmountable uh, juggernaut charging through history, and whatever progress deems as what's proper is what's proper. Whatever progress deems as what's right, that's what's right. And so we have this idea then that the further we go back in time, Morality wanes in the past and accelerates in the future. But time actually has nothing to do with what's right. Something that was true 2,000 years ago is true today. Now mores change and approaches change, and there is such thing as good progress. And we've seen a lot of it happen. I don't have a desire to go back and live 500 years ago. I'm happy to live exactly where God put me in time. But at the same time, if it was true 2,000 years ago, what Jesus said, it's true today. And so I just want you to eradicate the idea that time has anything to do with whether or not it's true. But the second is this the same question that faced the hearers of Christ 2,000 years ago faces you today. If Jesus is not divine, you can take it or leave it. But if Jesus is God, we've got to do something with what He said. If Jesus is the agent of creation, as John argues in John chapter 1, if He is the Lord of all creation, as the Bible argues, then brothers and sisters, we have to do something with what He said. If Jesus is God, then His authority is absolute. So if you're doubting along these lines, I want to encourage you to make a beeline to the resurrection. I think you've got to do something with the resurrection. There's too much evidence there. There's, there's too much there. And if the resurrection is true, then the, Jesus, the claims of Jesus were validated. So I'd encourage you. I've got resources for you. We can sit down and talk. Go to the resurrection and then go back from there. And then start to ask yourself questions about whether or not Jesus really has authority in your life. I would argue that he does. And here's the third kind of doubt, though, that Jesus encountered in this passage. He encountered people doubting his pedigree. Doubting his pedigree. Some of the people, verse 25 of Jerusalem, therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So it sounds like maybe they think he might be the Messiah, but listen to where the doubt comes in, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Some rabbinical traditions, and these would be man-made traditions, taught that the Messiah would be unknown until he revealed himself to save Israel. You see, in Jesus' day, there was kind of an obsession. You saw a hint of this in in the last point, a little earlier in the chapter, when they wonder how he can teach without rabbinical training. There was an obsession in the day over historical rabbinical tradition. There were whole books of commentaries written about the Old Testament, and oftentimes they would come to have more authority than the actual Scripture itself. They would often value the teaching of the rabbis over the Bible itself. I hear that sometimes as a pastor. You teach in the text, and oftentimes the biggest argument that folks have with me is not, I don't think the Bible says that, but I wasn't taught it that way. We have a tendency. And that, this was there's sort of a hyper version of this happening in Jesus' life. So they find themselves questioning whether or not Jesus is from God because they don't feel like he lines up with the sort of pedigree that their man-made teaching had said that he would have. Listen to Jesus' response in verses 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now people get mad again and start wanting to arrest him, but other people... Verse 31, believe in Jesus. Other people believe in Jesus. We have a similar doubt in our society today. And I really think this is the biggest hang-up that most people have with Christianity. In fact, there might be some of you right now who are believers already, but who are hanging on to some sin or hanging on to something in your life precisely because of this little doubt right here. Many people today would say, what Jesus teaches and all of what Jesus teaches just doesn't fit the mold of what I already believe. In other words, I disagree with what the scripture teaches. Or I disagree with what Jesus has to say. Now I like the love stuff. That's something that's what everybody has to say. I like the love stuff. They don't know what they mean by that. Just they heard that Jesus talked about love some. and so. But I like the love stuff, but some of the other stuff I could take or leave. Now let me ask you this question. Shouldn't we expect God to disagree with us? I mean, shouldn't we expect God to disagree with us? Think about your life. Think about any time you've come under authority in your life. What's the first authority most of us know? Mama and daddy, right? And I know every one of you were just perfect your whole life and never had any problems with your parents, right? Right? no punishment no, nothing nothing ever well of course all of us were punished by our parents right all of us got in trouble all of us were 13 or 14 at one point and thought the parents were the worst in the world or whatever else They don't let me do anything you've had this you have disagreements why because you want to be in control of you right and so these parents are getting in the way then you go to school then you go to school There's more authority there. Then you go to college, and there's more authority there. Then you get your first job. My kids tell me all the time, the older two especially, when I grow up, I'm going to do this. I get to do whatever I want. I say, let me know how that works out for you. You figure out how to do whatever you want when you grow up. You let me know how that goes. But don't we all have that sort of innate desire to just have total freedom? But any time you've ever come under authority in your life, you've had a rub. Without authority, why would it be any different with God? Why would it be any different with God? And why would we expect God to agree with us on everything we think when half the time we don't even agree with ourselves? Brothers and sisters, if God is who God says He is, we should expect God to not line up with us on every single thing. If the Bible's true, we should expect God. That's not a sign that you shouldn't believe Jesus. That's a sign that you should investigate further and not ask whether or not Christianity is something you like, but whether or not it's something that's true. Jesus is in the heart-changing business. Eventually, you can come to like something or live with something if it's true. But we want to know if it's true or not. You see, we should expect God not to line up with us on every single thing. In fact, don't you think that if you and God saw everything identically, that he would cease to be God, he's no different than us. But the Bible says his ways are higher than our ways. We should expect God to think differently than us. And that's one thing that the the rabbis of the day missed and that the teachers and the Jewish people of the day missed is that even though Jesus fulfilled all sorts of what God said, he often was at odds with what people of the day thought. And in fact, it drove them to anger to the point that they wanted to kill him. And eventually they did. Brothers and sisters, are we more religious than the people of Israel in the first century? Of course not. Do we know the scriptures better? No, many of them had it memorized, the Old Testament. Are we are we generally better people? No, all people are sinners. We should expect, we should expect God to disagree with us. This morning I want you to know, brothers and sisters, doubt your doubts. We will be encountering Jesus in the pages of Scripture over the next several weeks. And as you encounter Jesus, I want you to learn the lessons from these people who met him in the Bible. Today, you met these doubters. I hope you'll doubt your doubts. I hope you'll look beyond your initial response to Jesus and consider that perhaps just maybe you might have misunderstood him. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus for the first time, I want you to today to turn from your sins in repentance and turn to Jesus in faith, and He will save you. This altar's open for you today. Second of all, second of all, you may be uh, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I'm struggling with doubt. I just need some time to pray and talk to the Lord. This altar's open for you. And finally, you may say, I, I, We've been looking for a church home, and God's put it on our heart to join First Baptist Church. I'd love to talk to you this morning. About what it means for you to visit, I mean, to join First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us and guide us this morning, Lord, as we continue in worship through this invitation. Father, I pray, God, that you would move in our hearts, and Lord, that those who have business to do with you, God, would get it done today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.